0: Welcome to the Spent the Rent podcast. I am your host, Patty Rose. My guest is a dear friend of the podcast, Mark Molina. Mark, welcome to the show.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me, Patty Rose.
0: This is really exciting. So we've known each other now for a few years. Uh, We have worked in collaboration with our our two respective podcasts behind the scenes. Uh, It's really cool to see the podcast community locally growing and people being so supportive of each other. That was one of the things when I started this. I had no idea. What it was going to be like to interact with other podcasters but you and probably thomas yoda are two of my closest friends in the podcast community locally and now we have something super excited to talk about you have put your name in the hat and are running for city council in springfield uh i've watched your work uh, not just with the podcast but with your professional work uh, on the board for sub and some other things that that you are so passionate about our community. And so I wanted to have you on to talk about why you decided to run, uh, you know, and some other stuff at the direction of Springfield. We'll get to that at the end of this. But Mark Molina, thank you so much for doing this.
1: Yes, well, thank you, Patty Rose. It's been an interesting time for all of us as we're coming out of this pandemic, we're coming out of, isolation and lockdown multiple times we're coming out of what has been a turbulent social time for uh, communities cities this nation and the globe and we have a responsibility moving forward to try to help heal and to try to help bring us bring a sense of stability and help uh, try to create forums where we can all begin to listen to one another once again. And this is why I file for candidacy for Ward 5 Springfield City Council. You know, and anyone else that knows my work knows that I am level headed, that I can talk with anyone, listen to anyone. And it's important to me that our elected body has a measure of diverse diversity, not just in race, but diversity of thought. A diversity of experience, a diversity of exposure on the local elected body, so that it can represent, communicate with, and have a reasonable interaction, respectful interactions with the total constituency of the city.
0: Yeah, and you know, one of the things with your podcast that I want to talk about is that you have had conversations with a very diverse group of guests, from really all walks of life, across all political beliefs, and you know, sometimes some of your guests, their focus of your podcast is on leadership. It's called Molina Leadership Solutions, and it's available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And uh, you know, I've I've been surprised I've been impressed with some of the heavy hitters that you've interviewed and people across the board. I mean, one that always comes to mind for me, uh, Patty Perlow, she's district attorney, is that correct? Yes, Lake
1: County District Attorney. She's
0: been on a couple times. And then you've had people in the police department, fire department. You've had Black Lives Matter. You've you know, talk about some of that and what it means to really open your ears, essentially, and your mind for people that are across political beliefs.
1: Well, you know, I spent 11 years in the U.S. Army Infantry, Patty, and I spent uh, times time overseas. And I grew up in a small town in Texas. Let me begin with that. And so when I joined the U.S. Army, I thought everyone that was brown that looked like me ate tortillas, beans, and chorizo. And I found out that that was not true. People, uh, Cubans don't eat that. Puerto Ricans don't eat that. uh, People that look like me from the Dominican Republic don't eat that. People that look like me from uh, from Panama, they don't eat that. So I grew up a lot and I grew up really fast learning how, though I love my upbringing in a small town in Texas, it was not reflective of the world that we lived we live in and so i learned in the u.s army that the world is a big big place and learning to live with people from all walks of life all types of educational backgrounds socioeconomic background cultural background especially in the infantry because you sleep together shower together eat together in the dark in the rain in the snow in the swamp in the jungle in the desert You are always together and what guides your conduct is the military ethos, your military training. And you have to learn to become a team with people that are an absolute contradiction to who you are as an individual in every conceivable possible way. And you do that through conversation and the the military ethos of, of relationship and authority and structure. And the terminology of authority and structure can have a negative connotation for people. But what that does is it establishes a framework for us to, to successfully live together, work together, strive together, and accomplish the mission together. So I learned from those experiences that we must be able to have conversations with people that are, are a, you know, a complete dichotomy of what we are. And to have those conversations honestly, sincerely, and to have a successful outcome, we truly have to listen. And we have to be patiently wade through what we might consider to be challenging thought, confrontational thought, confrontational language, maybe even some confrontational confrontational behavior, so that we can get through that to find out how do we get to an outcome an outcome that is workable, that is reasonable, and uh, helps us to better accomplish the mission. So with that in mind and seeing the turmoil that we were in as a community, I knew that I had the skill set, the passion, the desire, and the willingness to wade into many of these areas to say, we, if we do not find a way to have conversations right now, we were on the verge of imploding as a community and legitimately hurting and harming one another in ways that we could never pull back from and I was desperately trying to help our community avoid that.
0: Yeah. And you know, a lot of a lot more people have come to the table in Springfield in the in the last couple years. You know, there's a lot of civic participation from from new people, you know, and that's really good in in a lot of ways because the more that people are involved, the more that our, it, our democracy actually works, because a lot of times you can win elections, national elections I'm talking about, with like 30% of the vote, <laughs> you know, and that's not, that's not good. That's not good. That's not a representation of, of what the community wants. And that's a whole different issue. We're talking local government, you know, not federal, but uh, Springfield has been really interesting to see the, the face of the board change. And some of the people stepping up and running, and I think it's really exciting. Uh, speaking of the podcast, though, I want to talk about when you had talked about you had Black Lives Matter on, for example. Yes. Uh, uh, tell me about that. Tell me what your your mentality was at the time. There was a lot of people, especially in Springfield in our community, that just wanted to scoff at people protesting. Uh, you know that Black Lives Matter, and tell me why you wanted to reach an olive branch out and give an opportunity uh, for, you know, who some people in our community who feel voiceless, why you wanted to give them a voice.
1: Well, you're going to have to give me a few minutes to explain yeah, that because sure. this is part of who I am. Uh, my parents were Depression-era babies, and my my parents grew up in a segregated America. And I was born into what was the Civil Rights Movement in 1964. So from my generation, from my family, from our experiences, we saw the end result of or the result of the racial strife that was taking place all over the U.S. at the time as we were traveling around, as my father was active duty military. My father had to travel with a gun because legally people could harm us because we were brown and get away with it. And so my father knew that he was going to have to have a weapon to defend his family if it came down to it. Didn't matter that he was active duty military. It didn't matter that he was honorably serving this nation. He didn't even have a right to vote in his tours of combat, though he was an, an American citizen. And so we saw, we grew up with seeing all of that strife, all of that tension. And when my, and it wasn't. All, every place all of the time because there was a lot of good people in our lives of different races. And so I had I saw that with my own eyes that we could be together as a community. When my father died at 39, after he retired from the military, he had a heart attack and then a stroke. His My father was an avid outdoorsman and his hunting buddies were all uh, Caucasian. And my mother loved deer meat. And every season uh, before she drowned three years later, my father's hunting buddies, every they would come to our house, back up to the back door with their deer that they had, that they had successfully shot and would tell my mother, what part of the deer do you want? Out of respect to my father, out of the memory, their relationship with my father and their respect for my mother. And they would cut all the meat that my mother wanted and they would put it in the freezer for her because they knew how much she loved it. And so I saw a lot of wonderful relationships like that, but I also saw the other side when my father died and my mother was, she was a widow, we were poor, and we were Hispanic. And I saw how society treated her and how they would treat her like she didn't matter, people spoke to her like she was a dog, like she didn't even have the right to exist and the first time I rode public transportation in, in ni- 1972, we were going to New Mexico from our hometown in Texas to see my grandfather, my mother's father. And that was the first time I had ever ridden on public transportation because my fa- my mother couldn't drive when my father passed away. She was too busy raising seven kids at home while he was, you know, it was a different time in America. So she, they had their hands full keeping us fed and keeping us safe and alive. But I remember we got onto the bus and I noticed all these black people on the back of the bus. I mean, stuffed Patty Rose in the back of the bus. It's Texas. It's summertime. It's hot. They were sweating. And I had never seen that before. And me and my twin brother, my mother only had enough money to buy one ticket. So uh, I was on her left knee. My twin brother was on her right knee. And I asked my mom, I said, mom, I said, Mommy, why are all the black people on the back of the bus? And I didn't understand her answer then, but I never forgot her answer. She said, it's because they don't realize they don't have to stay there anymore. And it really, it it was the look on her face, it was the look in her eyes, and it was the tone of her voice that even now I can feel that child being in total awe of that moment, realizing that that really meant something. So. This older man gets on the bus, cowboy hat, cowboy boots, and there's only one seat left open on the bus, and that was right next to our mom. Those were the only two seats open to the, to the other side of the driver, and he demanded that my mother get in the back of the bus, take us and get in the back of the bus where we belong, get in the back of the bus with all the Negroes and the other things he was saying, right? And my mother kept saying to him, I'm an, I'm an American. I don't have to get on the back of the bus, and he was yelling at her, and and uh, he was telling the bus driver to force her to get in the back of the bus where she belonged because he didn't want to sit next to us, and so the bus driver started yelling at my mother to get on the back of the bus, and she kept saying, I'm an American, I do not have to get on the bus, I paid for my ticket, I'm not getting on the back of the bus, and so uh, finally that man had... He had the bus driver had to take off, so the man finally sat down, and he just verbally brutalized my mother until he got off. And so we're both—I'm in my mother's left leg, so I'm sitting next to this man. And every time my foot barely touched him, he would start yelling, uh, yelling at my mother, "Get your you know your dirty filthy kids off of me! Don't let them touch me!" And then a couple of times I fell asleep, and my head fell to the left, and it touched him, and he would hit my head with his shoulder. And tell my mother, you know, get your your kids off of me, but cussing at her and making racial comments, and my mother would just hold me, pull me closer, and she said, but she'd say, uh, Let's "Go to sleep back, go back to sleep on me, Marky." is what she called me at the time. And I, you know, looking back, no one defended my mother, Patty Rose. No one stood up for her. All these people watched, and culturally, that was what was going on in the day. And looking back, I realized. That man could have probably assaulted my mother physically and gotten away with it. Wow. And so we're coming back and same thing, only two seats open in the the bus, same two on the front. We sit down with her mom. I sit on her left leg, my twin brother's on her right leg. And this young man comes in with a cowboy cowboy hat, cowboy boots. And I'm terrified when I see this guy. I'm thinking, this is going to happen again. I remember the fear. And uh, he looked at my mother, and he took his hat off, and he said, "Ma'am, do you mind if I sit here next to you?" He was much younger, uh, probably early twenties. Looking back, having to gauge it now, and my mother, you know, uh, said, "No, please, no, please have a seat." And uh, the entire time, he was very respectful to my mom, and he was respectful to to me, and we had these little marionettes our mother bought us in Mexico and so what we we're playing with them they get get kept getting tangled up and he would untangle it and then he asked my mom you know about her and she was explaining how my dad had just died and the kids and all of that and he's crying he's listening to my mom and then my mom is crying and then he asked my mom is it okay if your son sits with me for a little bit so you can get a rest and so he let me sit on his lap so my mother could legs could get a break and he was just talking to me and we got home and he stood up and he took his hat off again and he thanked my mom, thanked her for um, being so kind. And I'm so very sorry about the loss of your husband and what has been what has been to you and your family. And so I saw that dichotomy in that moment. I saw this older aged white man who hated us because of the color of our skin and demanded we get in the back of the bus where we belong and had no problem screaming, yelling, humiliating, embarrassing, because he had the right to do it, I guess. To this younger man who had nothing but courtesy and, dig- and treating my mother with kindness and respect and extended her human dignity. So this is, we saw this in the world growing up. I'm 57. So I saw this dichotomy of community, this cult- these cultural battles, these social battles uh, daily. All, all, all growing up, and so when I saw what was going on with black unity, I saw it in the military too. I saw it all over the world in the military with race issues and things of that nature. So when the black unity leaders came through, I really believed that we they needed a, they needed to voice what they were who they were why they're doing what they're doing and I we needed the community to be able to ask questions to find a place of how can we speak uh, create co- communication and conversation so I had put out on my my uh, media that uh, black unity had agreed all four leaders had agreed the community as a whole all kinds of people sent in f- four pages of questions Wow and so I sent all those questions to the black unity leaders because you've seen my podcast I don't ambush anyone I don't assault anyone I don't abuse anyone I help people tell their story in their own words and I don't judge it yeah because yeah. it's okay that we're all different so the four black unity leaders uh, they all logged on and we just went they introduced themselves they gave me a short bio of each one of them and they want I wanted the community I wanted to know who they were number one. And I wanted the community to know who they were so we could find begin to find that common ground from the very beginning. And then we just uh, began asking the questions. We couldn't get to all of them uh, because if we only had two hours and there was four of them. And I wanted to give all four of them an opportunity to elaborate. But it was very uh, be, uh, eye-opening and built a platform for them to come to Springfield City Club and other venues then began to see that um, there is a message, uh, there is passion as much as other people had passion. And there is, there, there are things that we can do to help them and help ourselves in the process. And so trying to open that door and it took a couple of days, Patty Rose, um, before the hate mail started coming into me from people in the community that I knew and, It was it was pretty vile stuff. And I considered for a moment publicizing all of those comments because it was just so vile. And then I realized that I would be sabotaging the work that I had was trying to do. Yeah. And I and I decided not to do it. If I wanted to harm anyone, I could have taken their comments, put them all over the Internet, posted it to the websites of their businesses and send it to their clergy and their churches and all of those things and say, this is this is the reality of what we're facing here. But I but I chose to take it, to bury it and to keep moving forward on the other side of that. When I spoke with Chief Lewis and uh, Lieutenant uh, Crawley. One of the other of his leadership team couldn't make it. Same thing, the questions came in. They only gave me one hour and it's a little bit different because of uh, police operations. <clears throat> um, they answered the questions too, those that they could because active investigations, they, they're not allowed to, to talk about it. But after I interviewed them, I couldn't get to every question. But then after that interview, people on the other side of the argument were angry with me because they wanted me to, uh, you know, uh, attack uh, Chief Lewis, attack the police. And I and I tell people all the time that I am no one's arm of vengeance. If you want to get into that kind of uh, psychological, verbal assault with anyone that I interview, you get a podcast and you do it for yourself.
0: Yeah. People have asked me the same thing. People have asked me many times, why don't you have more people with opposing views? And I'm like, I do think I've had guests with opposing views. I just don't have people that have vitriol, (laughs) you know. You know, I'm not gonna have a guest that I don't admire. And we've done things differently, you know. When you talk about Chief Lewis, that is the former chief that had uh, retired, uh, well under investigation, was very well documented, that there was a lot of issues with the department at the time. And I actually respect you a lot for having for opening uh, your door, so to speak, even though it's all virtual at this point. But so that you could learn more about it. I mean, it's like if you don't communicate with those in the community, we're creating more of a divide, you know? And I just thought it was really cool. There was a lot of players. Obviously, Rick Dancer is somebody that gets a lot of coverage. But Rick Dancer can't be the only one doing it because he's awful at it as far as bridging the divide. He's, he's, he's created more division than good, in my opinion. There's just it's – a, it's a feedback loop. And I worry that sometimes what we do is a feedback loop as well. But that being said – it's just more of the conversation and I think that's really good. But yeah, I mean, when I interviewed Trey Stewart, who was, he won journalist of the year from the Eugene weekly for his streaming of the black unity protests in 2020 in the summer, I got a lot of emails that were wild. And one of the responses that I got, I'd like to ask you about, uh, you know, it was a lot of black people that reached out to me and said, I'm black and I don't I don't believe that the black lives matter movement is a good thing so you cannot speak for an entire group of people but for the Hispanic community if you were to get the same question you as an individual I'm asking if you had someone in the Hispanic community that says hey I, I think that you're you're approaching this you know in a different way or anyone for that matter what would your reaction be to that where you're gonna you know speak your truth what would your reaction be to that
1: Well, I have gotten feedback from a a lot of people in different communities around uh, not liking my position. They don't like the fact that I am a, a moderate and I am a moderate. I am a centrist. I do not hide that. Uh, I do not hide that uh, I believe in having a police department. My bro- one of my brothers, who since passed away, was a retired federal agent. He was in the military before that. One of my uncles was a retired police officer. He since passed away. He was in the military. My family is three generations deep in U.S. military service. We have three generations right now. We have the three, the third generation is currently on active duty, officers and enlisted, and combat veterans all throughout my my generation. All but one of the males is a veteran, and so all of my brothers are. One of my sisters is. I believe in military service. I believe in the hope of America. I believe in the possibilities of America. I, you know, we come from different places. Where in Texas, sheriffs are Hispanic and judges are Hispanic and police officers are Hispanic and black and uh, different Asia, uh, from Asian representation. And so for, it's not strange in bigger cities and different geographical locations, but it can be here in Oregon and some some of these states. And so, yes, I've received many of a lot of criticism from a lot of different uh, organizations and or individuals, and I do not claim to speak for everyone, Patrick. Yeah, Patty. right. I, I don't. Sure. I speak for myself, and I want to be clear that other people don't speak for me either. If if the if if you don't know my opinion, don't assume that comments that other people are making about the Latino community is my opinion.
0: Right. That's huge. That's huge because you know it. For example, for you know this is a nonpartisan seat first of all, in in city council, it's a nonpartisan seat. So a moderate is actually a really good thing. I think Sean van Gordon is he's mayor. Uh, I think it's safe to say that it's impossible to exp- uh, lab- label his political views, for example, because he has friends across the board, inspiration across the board. and I'll let him speak more on that at a, at a later date and I hope he will because he's a great interview. But these nonpartisan seats, that's the it's designed so that it can be uh, representative of the community as a whole. And it's not such a partisan thing. But that being said, as a member of the DPLC, the Democratic Party of Lane County, as a as a precinct committee person, as I am, and I'm seeking reelection, by the way, I'll be I'll be uh, on the ballot this time, which is pretty exciting. I want to say something about the police department, because. There's so much talk about defund the police, defund the police. That is not the position of the Democratic Party, you know, and and it's so funny how many people think that where we had a vote for endorsements and before the last election. And one of the ballot measures was about funding a uh, position, a deputy fit position for a rural, I think the Mohawk uh, Police Department, the Democratic Party of Lane County unanimously voted to support the funding of this new position in a time when everyone thought defund the police was the strategy or defund the police was the position. So I think it's really, I'm glad that you said that as an individual that if you want to know my position, you're going to have to ask me, don't assume it, you know what I'm saying? Because that's the same thing for the, for the democratic party as well, you know? And so sometimes people think that they, they want this framing. So they run with it and it's just, it's not the truth. It's not reality. So, when you put your name in the hat, you had initially ran unopposed. And then it's, you know, in the, I wouldn't say 11th hour, but it's crazy how, how short this campaign actually is going to to be. I mean, we're talking May 17th is when ballots have to be mailed in. But when you put your name in, you were running unopposed. And then you had an opponent. And the conservatives in our district Uh, it sounds like recruited someone to run against you in this nonpartisan seat. And I think that maybe we should talk about that a little bit. What was your instant reaction at first when you thought, you know, this unopposed? Uh, Did you think that that would stick? Or did you kind of know that there was going to be there was going to it was going to be a little more difficult? Uh, I think you're muted. I think you're muted, Mark. Okay, we are back. We had some technical difficulties. I don't know what happened, but we lost your mic. So we have you on the phone audio now, such is life with virtual podcasting. We were talking about how you had put your name in the hat and you were, it looked like you were running unopposed. And in the 11th hour, uh, the conservatives in our area found uh, an opponent for you. And such is life, I mean, campaigns are meant to be uh, an exchange of ideas from people with you know, different views. And then the voters can decide, but what was going through your head when you saw that you would, you would have an opponent and that this was actually not just going to be, uh, you know, an unopposed seat.
1: Well, when I filed back early in January, I was not concerned concerned about about that. That that um, part of I expected to have an opponent, Patty Rose. I expected someone, if not counselor Woodrow herself, I didn't know if she was going to file again or not file again. I had no idea. But I wanted to uh, engage in this process, this exchange of ideas, this exchange of opportunity for representation. Uh, For too long, uh, before the War III seat with uh, Corey Rodley, Johannes Tadeo and Chris McAllister, many of these seats have been unopposed. These races have gone on unopposed for years. And we as a constituency of the city have an opportunity as well as a responsibility and duty to not allow that to continue to be so. So I wanted to, um, I expected an opponent. I was not looking for a walk-in election. I would have not, honestly, I would not have felt good about that. And I told my wife, if I I don't get an opponent, and I had already been hearing from several people in the community uh, the GOP is looking for opponent against you, specifically Joe Pishonary's name came out multiple times. Um, and that they were going to find someone that several people had said to me very clearly, we do not want you that are in the GOP, that people that I know had said, we do not want you to win this seat. We're not just gonna stand by and let you win this seat. And I yeah, said, well, a well the campaign process has to be run and ultimately the voters decide, right? So I'm not, I don't know my opponent. Uh, she's, she has been an elected official before. So she is, she is skilled. She works for the city of Eugene planning department that much I do know. she appears to have a lot of legitimate uh, historical capacity as much as I do. We're both We're highly, highly qualified uh, candidates, candidates for this position at the city of Springfield. And so that makes it a better process. Uh, uh, I, I reached out to my opponent on Facebook I wanted to introduce myself and thank her for uh, joining in the campaign. Turns out we're both training for the GMAT Marathon, wanting to create that concept of common ground. When this is said and done, we're going to be living here. We're going to be residents here. Right, we have right. a responsibility to continue to try to work together. And so I'm not uh, upset that I have an opponent. I don't. I didn't want some kind of easy election. So then people could say, "If, if you know what, Patty Rose, if I win, if I get more votes, okay, great. But if I win by virtue of no opponent, I'll never hear the end of it. Oh, you only got on because you didn't have an opponent. Oh, you had it easy. That's why uh, you got on. You know, you wouldn't have won if you would have had an an opponent. You know how people are. Right. And I wanted, if I was going to win the seat, I wanted to win it through the legitimate democratic processes that we have here and not only in our municipality, but it's been clearly established in this nation. So if, if Councilor Pissionary and those that support him felt like I am not who they want in the, this office, then they should have done what they did. I would like to say officially for the record, Councilor Pissionary, you asked me to support your candidacy for County Commissioner in 2009, and I did. I thought you would have been a great representative for the city of Springfield. And I didn't question you. I didn't question your motives. We're not even in the same party. And I believed uh, that you were were interested in the total constituency of the city. And I believed in you and I supported you. And I want to make sure you tell your your constituency that. Because the things that I'm hearing being said about me are untrue. I'm, I served this nation. I have served my community. long before that man was ever on the city council, Patty Rose, and I want this for the record. I was coaching families, kids in soccer and in football, and a soccer referee for the games, of the, the the families in this city. I was cub master for Maple Elementary. I was Scoutmaster for Thurston troop fifty one. I was here coaching, picking up kids besides my own kids for practices taking kids home when parents were working, taking kids to games, taking kids home from games, spending my vacation time on summer camps with the boys from the Boy Scouts, uh, taking my, uh, uh, all the weekends of fundraisers with Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, serving, giving, uh, making, trying to make our, our community a better place as a whole. So I don't appreciate some of the mischaracter mischaracterizations mischaracteri- of who I am by him. And I wanted to say that officially. And I wanted to say that out loud because he has to be accountable for
0: that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the direction of Springfield. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's three things I want to touch on. First, let's, I want to talk about the police chief, uh, the, you know, chief Shearer who have you had him on your podcast? Yes. Yes. Okay. And I did it as well. And it was a great interview. And chief Shearer was just recently, uh, locked in he was interim police chief for a few months uh, i'm not exactly sure i don't have it in front of me for exactly how long but when he first started uh mayor van gordon reached out to me and asked me if i'd like to interview him and it was a great interview and like we had talked about before i did get some flack for even having a conversation with him and i've been very vocal about that on the podcast but it was ridiculous because uh what a great opportunity for me and for our community to have an actual. you know people had said to me uh you know, oh, they're just saying what you want to hear, and I'm like, isn't that kind of something when somebody's performative for you? Don't you think that that's that's actually kind of a that's a step in the right direction in some ways. Uh, what is your take on on Chief Shearer uh, being appointed as the permanent police chief?
1: I had, as you did, the opportunity to interview him, and I appreciated his eagerness. I appreciated his willingness. I appreciated his desire to have the conversation, knowing that we were in a difficult place in our community. Let's call it for what it is, a culture war. This is what it is. Um, he, He was brought in to try to resolve some of the issues, some of the struggles, some of the contentions, to find answers, provide solutions. That man, I believe, we owe a lot of gratitude because he accepted it, knowing what was at risk. And knowing what was at stake and knowing how volatile things were in our community and in our city. And he came in and he put his hand to the plow and he put his head down and he went to work and he was serious about it. He let the, the consultant that the city of Springfield, our city manager, hire to re, to review the, the cases the things that were going on. And he focused on streamlining internal police operations. Uh, he he focused on addressing some of the cultural norms, the informal and formal norms that were becoming uh, questionable, that were becoming potentially harmful. I went to an event in Beaverton, Oregon, where there were several law enforcement uh, officials and several clergy and community leaders. Every any, anywhere from the Muslim community to the Christian community, to the, from the FBI to the new pol- uh, Portland police uh, chief, uh, the bureau chief, all of them gave raving reviews about chief sheriff his devotion to the community when he was there, his devotion to building bridges of conversation, his devotion to understanding the different cultures that were all at stake and building a police force that could respond coherently to all of the different cultural uh, norms that were taking place at the same time in these cultural expressions that were different. If that doesn't say enough about who he is as a person, that, that says a lot. Yeah. All, all of these different community members would say, you guys are so lucky. You're so fortunate because that man is good at what he does, but he really cares about what he does.
0: Yeah. One of the things when I interviewed him that was a shock was that unequivocally, he said, when George Floyd was murdered, you know, and it was I that was the way that he started when we talked about that conversation. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa let me slow down. <laughs> That, and, and it was I mean, I always when I talk about this episode, I really encourage people to go back and listen to it because it was so thorough, you know, but that I mean, just the framing when he words it like that, that's pretty telling where his head's at with stuff. So but, you know, I, I thought he, I was impressed and and I'm a fan. So one more thing I want to talk about before we talk about just the general direction of Springfield is the Main Street Safety Project. This has been a hotly contested, well, honestly, I don't know how many people are fighting in favor of it, <laughs> you know, you know uh, but I will say that, you know, something has to be done. If anyone's unfamiliar, between 20th and 70-something in, this, in, in Thurston uh, on Main Street, there's, there's a proposal uh, to put in basically nine roundabouts and some raised meridians. I've talked about it on the podcast. I had the project manager Molly Mercurian on. And basically there's been a long talked about issue of uh, pedestrians being hit by cars on main street and something has to be done. And and I don't think that's debatable that we cannot continue with what we're doing now. They've tried different things, but the proposal has been very uh, harshly criticized by many in the Thurston area. And I wanted to ask you what you thought about it. I know that behind, you know, off air, you had talked about how you don't support the, the current proposal, you know, what's been uh, discussed and the plans that are in place because it will affect a lot of business. So maybe you can talk on that. What is, what is your take on the Main Street Safety Project?
1: Yeah, so very innovative idea, first of all. Very intriguing <laughs> idea, second of all. Um, who doesn't want safer, a safer street and safer roads? We know it's a busy busy main thoroughfare through our city but the cost to businesses the cost to the loss of sidewalks the cost of park loss of significant parking spaces to local businesses loss of access to their storefronts by their clients by the employees themselves uh, to inability for new businesses to participate for instance where the dutch brothers is all that's going to be gone on 42nd that dutch brothers will go you know taco bell is really close to the street right there at the corner of 42nd and maine uh, the tire section the tire street is re- the business is really close uh, that little uh, sushi shop won't be able to be there anymore that gas station's really close it's going to have a dramatic shift on access in and of itself to businesses by taking from businesses, entry point, access points, uh, consumer points, and, uh, uh, access, um, employee access. If any of the I mean, elected officials that we have do not own businesses that will be dramatically, negatively impacted by this plan, then they have a duty to vote no for this plan. My wife, my business, my wife's business, we we rent here from Sean Highland and and his family in the Highland Business Park. All of the parking spaces in this complex along the street will be lost. All the employees that work here will not have any place to park at all. These are overflow parking, parking spaces for clients of all these businesses here as well. All the delivery vehicles that come in, all the the parts vehicles that come in. We have three, I believe, HVAC contractors, if not four, in these four buildings. We have serious, we have vehicles, uh, businesses with multiple fleets, right? So all of that will have a negative impact just right here in the Highland Business Park alone. But when you multiply that up and down the street, the impact is going to be too uh, astronomical, in my estimation. Economic loss for regular citizens, economic loss to business owners, economic loss and economic uh, loss of opportunity. If we have any other pending ideas or entrepreneurs that may spring up in that time frame, I know it's a long-term plan. There's bits and pieces of it that are uh, reasonable and, and quite frankly, attractive. But they're, in my opinion, they need to go back to the drawing board and find out and do something different.
0: Yeah. And I mean, any if you look on any uh Thurston group people are pretty on un- they're not okay with it. And, you know, they're they're definitely against it. I was unaware that it would remove like Dutch Bros for example. Like Dutch Bros would be flat gone. That's what's in the proposal. So- wow. Yeah, that's that's not good. Uh I'm fine with raised meridians and those kind of things and people. And I like I like the concept of some roundabouts, but yeah, nine roundabouts is probably too many in that in that stretch. And so hopefully they do revisit it and it is also important to note that this was set up that it would take 20 years i mean it was a very long this proposal is something that wouldn't happen overnight it would be a long process and it's going to be interesting to see the population growth in our community and there might be a need for some of this stuff and so there's analytics of why some of it might have to happen you know because what we have currently is just not working uh so I want to close with the direction of Springfield. Uh, you've talked about where we've came from, that you've lived here for a long time, that there's been some, some major issues that you've had with our community, with some of the blatant racism and some different things. There's a lot of things to be optimistic about the way that we're heading. And I want to I wanna hear what you have to say about some of the optimism that you have for the direction that Springfield is heading.
1: Yeah, I have a lot of memories of extreme optimism. I've served in a lot of different capacities here. Just let it be said that I served as vice chair and chair of the police planning task force. I was on the budget committee for the city. I've done a lot of different things here currently on the Willamah Lane budget committee. Um, I was on the budget committee post housing market crash. So I got to see the, the massive loss of revenue and the massive impact economically to the city itself, along with the constituents of the city. And so from that experience, realizing that how what is most important to Springfield, well, that's up to the mayor to answer in the current elected body. But my observations and my opinion is that economic loss is going to be the priority, making sure we have enough in the budget to facilitate all the, the things that have to be to, excuse me, fund it for the operational component, component of the budget, budget and as far as the long-range component of the budget. So making sure that there's the finances available to continue with economic development, continue development of downtown, uh, bringing in, uh, allowing projects to build homes, things of that nature. I think the, the city's making great progress. I appreciate as you, yes, do. you do. Mayor Van Gordon, I think he has a very reasonable approach. He's, he cares a, a great deal about the broad spectrum of people here, the broad spectrum of the, the cultural component of the city, and as well as Nancy Newton, our new city manager. I think she's been a tremendous asset, a new breath of life into the city leadership itself, as far as its le- the leadership team of the staff and for the city employees. And I would like to, I'd like to be a part of that, Patty Rose, as, as a Ward five city councilor. The city's doing a lot of really wonderful things. And, and there's a lot of really good people that are in, that live in the city that care. And I wanna say that I know that <clears throat> the people that get involved do care and they want the same things that I think you and I want. A safe place to live, safe streets, good economy they want to be able to raise their families safely here and so i'm not trying to necessarily dwell on any any one particular negative thing because every community has something that they're going to struggle with or wrestle with but in my candidacy i would like to to be a part of those conversations be part of uh, policy development i was i saw the impact Post housing market crash, I know how critical it is. My wife and I lost our home. We had to move in with friends. I, we know those hardships. It's not, it's not a game. It's not a joke. With these, uh, what the forbearance programs ending for home buyers and renters, we're going to enter potentially enter into a whole new season of potential evictions and other things that may take place and so from someone who's had to live that and live through that i want to be able to bring those experiences to that decision making process bring that empathy to bring that compassion to bring that awareness and say i know what my city has gone through before i have had to live on food stamps i've had to live on going to free medical clinics i've worked for 450 an hour 5 dollars an hour 6 dollars an hour i've lost a home all of those things And so I want to bring that sense of I am one of them and they are one of me. Those common experiences that we have and say, we can do this together. It's not, it's not just about one segment of society holding on to power.
0: Yeah. And I'm so glad you said that because you talk a lot about leadership. That's what your podcast is all about. And I think one of the most important traits for a good leader is empathy. (laughs) And I think that that's something that we, two things we need in our community is to lower the temperature and uh and some empathy. And so Mark Molina, uh candidate for Springfield City Council Ward 4 5. Uh thank you so much for doing this. I'm I'm grateful to call you a friend and it's it's been great to see your uh media stuff grow over the last few years with the podcast. Are are you going to continue doing the podcast deep into if you if you are elected? I know you'll be a lot busier, so maybe a little less, but
1: yeah, I haven't, I haven't done much because the, the campaign and some other things that are going on, I'm going to have a couple scheduled for the next couple of weeks. And so um, it may just take a different turn, maybe. Sure. But yeah. I, haven't I have not have much because yeah. it's, it's an important uh, component of ongoing communication. And, you know, I would just like to say in closing for myself, Patty Rose, first of all, I want to thank you. And I do want to sincerely thank Victoria Doyle, my opponent this is not easy. We're both gonna have to talk to a lot of people. We're both gonna have to face uh, assumptions about who we are, conclusions about who we are. And so I do wanna thank her uh, for her willingness to do this. It's gonna be hard on both of our families. They're gonna have to make sacrifices in the next couple of months. I'm gonna let the voters decide. I wanna be c- clear about that. It is up to the voters and whatever the, the end result is, it will be what it will be. And this is I will still live here and I will still participate and I will continue to serve. This is still my home. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to bury my head in the sand. I will continue to try to make an impact and a difference in a way that makes our home, Springfield, Oregon, a better place to live and a better place to be.
0: Yeah. Well, Mark Molina, uh, candidate for Springfield City Council, Ward 5, you've got my vote. I think that's a given. Uh, uh, You had it the second that you said that you were running. And so I do appreciate you coming on and talking to me today. Uh, We're going to get out of here with a song. This is uh, one of my favorite songs by my good friend, Joey Helpish. This is Joey Helpish with Gaslight.
2: I was only seven when she came to me and said, don't let them bring you down. monsters, thieves and games They turn down the gaslight to make you feel insane They will try to tell you that the feelings that you feel cannot possibly be something that But don't grow weary in the well-doing you do. Well, I was only seven.